Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Jordan Gall, CEO and co-founder of Rally, a checkout payment platform that's raised $6 million in funding. Jordan, thanks for chatting with me today. Brett, thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to talk. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Sure. So how can I say it? I've been an entrepreneur for a very long time. I grew up in an immigrant entrepreneur. My parents brought us over from Israel. So I've just been in startups and entrepreneurship in one way or another for, I don't know, almost 30 years. Very cool. I read the book Startup Nation years ago, and I got on a plane and flew to Israel and met with a bunch of companies there because I was so excited about it. Have you read that book? I have read that book. And that's the book I recommend to people when the conversation comes up around like, what's the deal with Israel? Why are there so many startups? Why is it so much funding? It's a great explanation of how the culture, the geography, the politics all mix in to make that environment. For sure. It just makes a lot of sense all of a sudden of why you see all of these companies coming out of Israel every day on TechCrunch. It you know, connects the dots, I think. Yeah, that's right. Very nice. And let's you know, ask a few questions here just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. So is there a founder CEO that you're following the most right now and really look up to and admire? So I thought about this question for a while. You know, my honest answer, like a founder that I look up to is my father. I grew up watching someone take like the biggest risk of all and just grab your family from one country, go to another and just chew on glass and take risk and persevere. And I shy away from idolizing like celebrity founders. Mm -hmm. I I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's wise. I I know myself a little bit. I have like an envious nature when it comes to that. So I, I don't look up to like the big celebrity founders and like keep track of them. I, I admire many of them. I think it's amazing what they do, but it feels disconnected from like, you know, what I really look up to are the people like around me that I admire and I, and I get to see the good and the bad. Totally. I love that. And it's refreshing to not hear Elon Musk or, you know, Jeff Bezos kind of, you know, all those typical yeah, founders like, that a lot of people admire. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that. You don't know the truth. You're getting one very narrow view. If you have other friends, if you have peers that you get to know and you see the full picture, I think that's when you start to admire someone, when you realize that they're going through something really difficult in the family, at home, and still doing something amazing in the business front. You get to know what part of it was luck, what part of it was skill, what part of it was hard work, all that. Totally. I love it. And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had the greatest impact on you as a founder? And this can be a business book or it could just be a you know personal book that's really just influenced how you think and how you work. Sure. I can think of a few. When it comes to a straight business book, The the Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz mm-hmm. is, is great and is a pretty accurate view of the emotional roller coaster of starting a company. And like the near-death experiences, the perseverance, the ugly parts. Outside of business, I like David McCullough and his work on like just historical figures like John Adams. I think I end up liking stories of perseverance. I happen to be reading Endurance right now, the Shackleton story. 
Um, <laughs> I love that book. Then, I read it, and then all of a sudden they found the ship like one week later. I was so excited. That's right. That's right. Very recent that they found it. It's incredible. And who was yeah. the other and, and, that wrote about John Adams? David McCullough. So he's, I think he's best known popularly for writing the book 1776. Mm-hmm. But he's got a library of just unbelievably great historical work. And are these the types of books that are like 900 pages long? Yes, but in a good way. You know, like Churchill. You start mm-hmm. to read about Churchill, you get into these huge books, but it's like a narrative. So it sounds like a, it's a story. So it's entertaining. But yes, McCullough writes those big, fat books that are, are very narrative in nature. Nice. I tried the, I think it was called Titan was the exact name about John D. Rockefeller. And I listened to it on Audible and it was like 32 hours long and seven hours in, it was like he's in third grade. And I was, <laughs> I just couldn't stick with it. But I wish I could have because I, I think there's so many good lessons to learn from those types of books. Yeah. The one last book that I would recommend that I look at for business these days is Ready Player One. I think it's an incredibly like prescient view on where the internet is going. It has elements of like influencers and how big of an audience influencers can build. It's got gaming. It's got like the Web3 ownership and currency parts of it. You know, I don't like the dystopian part of it. I think it's like interesting, but I, I don't really see like the whole world falling apart and go looking to the internet. I don't think the world needs to fall apart for people mm-hmm. to be into the internet. They're already quite into it as it is. But I watch that movie from like a business point of view. Hmm. Interesting. And going back to hard thing about hard things, how do you identify? Are you a peacetime CEO or more of a wartime CEO? I have to say, I would love to be a peacetime CEO, but I feel like I've been at war for a good four or five years straight. Yeah. And we can get into why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. So let's talk a bit about Rally. And then I have some other questions that I want to ask about your background, but let's start there. So can you walk us through what Rally does and the origin story behind the company? Sure. So Rally offers e-commerce merchants a checkout solution. And what that means is e-commerce merchants can use our checkout solution instead of the checkout provided to them by the platform. So historically speaking, if you build your e-commerce store on big commerce, WooCommerce, Shopify, wherever else, the merchant assumes that they have to use the checkout provided by the platform. And that's one of the big things that we challenge. We are a startup. We're a bunch of lunatics focused on one very narrow problem. And we think we can do a better job at the checkout, the actual pages on the web that the shopper transacts on. We think we can do a better job than the platform that has a lot to worry about. So that's where we're focused. The people have probably heard of some of our competitors like Bolt and you know previously Fast before they went down. Yeah. Let's talk about those. I think that's an interesting conversation to have. So as I'm sure you know, you saw and the whole world saw when what's Ryan Breslow, I think is their CEO, when he went on his tweet storm, you know, calling out the monopoly that I think he said, the Stripe, <laughs> yeah, the mafia has, uh, what was it? Was it Stripe and Y Combinator? Yes, that's right. A lot of noise there. Then fast, I think, what was it, $125 million raised and that imploded in 12 months. How do you deal with all this noise in this checkout space as you're trying to build something in the checkout space? Yeah, it's a challenge in a few different ways. So my previous company was bootstrapped. And that felt like you are dealing with a lot of noise, but you're not as caught up in it. You're not as impacted by it. 
And Rally, we went the venture route. We've raised a $6 million seed round. And, you know, soon enough, we'll announce more funding in the future. But in that environment where your business is very tied to the venture industry and the thoughts of VCs, what happened with Fast and Bolt had a much bigger impact on us. So it wasn't just watching and being entertained, especially because they were direct competitors of ours. It really had an impact on the business. At first, it had a good impact. And then very quickly, it had a bad impact. And those were almost like inverse to how it felt. So when Fast and Bolt were getting a ton of attention, you couldn't go 20 minutes on Twitter without bumping into some bit of news or some big brag or something or other. That felt bad because it's your competitors constantly getting attention and then you're in your head, you're saying, am I supposed to do that? Should I go out there and be like bombastic on Twitter and make these claims? But at the same time, when you talk to investors, they think your space is super hot and there's a lot of potential and everyone you know that couldn't get into this round maybe wants to get into your round. So I had this very strange relationship where it was inverse to how it felt compared to the impact it had on the business. But then very quickly, within a matter of weeks, Fast went bankrupt and Bolt, I don't want to say imploded, but there was so much drama that it turned negative. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, investors start looking at our space more skeptically. Maybe there's something wrong. We know that it's the individual people making decisions, but maybe there's something inherent in the checkout space that doesn't make sense. So it was this interesting dynamic around, you know, when I got a little bit of schadenfreude around the bombastic founders not doing as well as they said they were doing, it was actually bad for the business at the same time. So it's a weird kind of you know, experience. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. And something else I'd love to you know, zoom in on there is, you know, it, from what I read online, you're a, you're a checkout veteran, right? Your company that you had previously founded that you did bootstrap, that was also in the checkout space? It was in the checkout space. That's right. So the origin of Rally probably starts 10 years ago. About 10 years ago, I started a business with my two brothers and we sold products online. So we were e-commerce merchants. We did that for about a year. We grew up pretty quickly and then we decided to sell it because we were we didn't like where things were going in an Amazon world. It was either you got to make your own brand or, or you got to get to really big scale. We were selling other people's products. We didn't want to make our own brand, so we sold the business. But that's what got me started in e-commerce. After that, I started a company called Carthook. And it started off as an abandoned card app. Pretty simple, just send emails to people that started to check out but didn't finish it. And that had me staring at checkouts for a few years. And when we went to do an integration with Shopify's checkout for the abandoned card app is when I stumbled on a bigger opportunity. Shopify's checkout at that time was super rigid. You couldn't do anything with it. It was three pages and back when it should have been on one page because most of the transactions were happening on desktop. And I saw the opportunity to build a more flexible, more customizable checkout for Shopify. And that's where Carthook ended up. And that, that product like blew up immediately. We did like 100 million in processing the first year, 200 million after, then 400, 800. And in total, we did $2.8 billion in processing. Unfortunately, at some point, as we got so big, Shopify shut down our API access. And that's what led me to want to leave the Shopify ecosystem to start Rally for the rest of the web. Wow. So did, did that just happen overnight? Did they just nuke the business out of nowhere? Or did you have some warning that that was coming? We had warning, but 
the whole experience was very strange, right? So if anyone looks at Shopify's financials these days, what you'll notice is a few years ago, the revenue breakdown between subscription and payment revenue flipped. It used to be predominantly subscription revenue. And now Shopify is predominantly, uh, the majority of the revenue comes from payments revenue. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, Shopify is a payments company. And our product was directly in contrast to their business model. So it's not even like that they're, you know, some evil bunch of Canadians. That's not really the, the truth. We just ended up on this inevitable collision course, even though we didn't really mean to. We just wanted to build a checkout. We just wanted to build a product that merchants wanted. That, that's the truth. And we heard very clearly from merchants that this is what they wanted. And our traction, even though we were never allowed in the app store, which means we grew like through word of mouth, all that growth was through word of mouth, proves that merchants wanted it. Mm-hmm. And over time, there was just more tension. And at some point, we started doing like $100 million a month in processing. And Shopify, they kind of needed it to stop because we were pulling off too much money off of the platform. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. That's crazy. Yeah, it was a crazy experience. Honestly, it's like you work super hard to you know make a successful company, and then as it becomes more successful, it just becomes more scary because you know we walked around with the guillotine over our head yeah. for for years, and eventually dropped. Crazy. One thing I did want to ask you about is your podcast. So you're a podcast host yourself, and it's focused on bootstrapped company building. Is that correct? Yes. So this is like a relic from my, you know, my previous company. So I do a podcast called Bootstrapped Web with my good friend, Brian Castle. And it's kind of like, it's like founder therapy in some ways. We just talk about what we learned that week, what went well, what didn't go well, what we're changing our mind on, what we're doubling down on. We're just speaking pretty freely as two friends that are, you know, in running their own businesses. It's called Bootstrap Web because when we started it, I came out of the microconf community of like bootstrap software founders. And that was my mindset. And coming from like the family business world, that was always my mindset. So I never intended to raise VC, but for Rally, it made sense to do so. And was that hard for you, you know, making that transition? Because what I tend to see is there's like, you have two worlds and you either really believe in bootstrap and think people who do the venture back route are, you know, just that they're out of their minds or they're playing you know, the wrong game. And on the other side, I think people playing the venture capital route look at Bootstrap and say, you know, it's you know, a lifestyle business, you know, cool little fun business on the side, but it's never going to you know, change the world and be this big thing. And typically what I've found is, you know, if you're in one of those camps, you passionately want to be in that camp and really fight for that and end it and almost look down on the others. So did you have to go through this like identity transformation? Are you viewed as like a trader in the bootstrap world? We're going out and raising the seed round. Uh, what are your thoughts there? So a little, <laughs> but but not not personally. And you're right to identify. It's almost like political parties, right? You're like, you got it. You have your team and you defend your team and the other team's just not as good as your team. I never really bought into that. I was never overly ideological about it and just wanted to do whatever made sense. And in truth, Cardhook, while bootstrapped, did take some money from friends and family. 
So Rob Walling, who runs the MicroConf community and has startups for the rest of us as his podcast and now has Tiny Seed as a fund for like bootstrap, like profitable minded companies. He actually invested in Cardhooks, right? So this is someone who runs the conference for bootstrap software, but he invested as an angel because what we were doing at Cardhook, some people call it fund strapping. It's kind of like trying to thread the needle. Mm-hmm. Bootstrapping, purely bootstrapping is A, very hard and B, I mean, who cares if you take some money or not? Really, the question is, does it change the nature of the business? Are you still going for profitability or not? And even VC now, like profitability is, is seen as a good thing all of a sudden because of where the market is. So at Cardhook, I wanted to raise just enough money to grow faster, but not so much that it changed the nature of the company. So we didn't give any board seats. We didn't raise from any institutional capital so I ran Cardhook as a profitable company, but also had investors. So it's like, I don't know, I'm not overly ideological on, on the categories or, or labels on it. Got it. That makes sense. And when you were starting Rally, was that something that you were you know, kind of battling with internally of, hey, should I do this you know, model or should I go out and raise institutional funding? Were you, you know, kind of on the fence there or was it clear with Rally that you wanted to do this one different from the previous company? Okay, so if I think back, when starting Rally, it seemed obvious to me that raising venture for Rally was necessary. So it wasn't so much like a what I felt like is really a decision on what I thought was the best thing. And the reason for that is because when we launched the Cardhook Checkout product, we did $100 million in processing the first year. I said that earlier, right? Sounds pretty cool. In reality, it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare because we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know the nature of a checkout product and how it impacts the development process, the QA process, the deployment process, how to sell it, the fact that it's not a self-serve product, that you do need to help people with onboarding, all these different things we discovered along the way. And the limitations on our ability to spend were significant. The company would have been better off the customers would have been better off and the team would have been better off and probably the outcome at the end of the day would have been better off if we had significantly more funding. If you combine that with the fact that new competitors were starting to pop up and there's a lot to build in a checkout product and we had big ambitions for the product and what we want to do, we needed a lot more capital up front than customers could supply. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And... When it comes to market categories, how do you think about market categories? Are you building something that's totally new here? Is this shipping away at an existing category? What are your views there? I like the new categories. I consider what we're doing a new category. In our situation, what we are trying to do is introduce a new set of ideas. Mm -hmm. Right now, for the past 20 years, when you think of an e-commerce store, What happened in the history of e-commerce is it really took offline shopping and built an online analogy. So the storefront is the homepage. The category pages are the aisles. The product pages are standing in front of the product and holding it up in your hand. Then you literally put into a shopping cart and then go to the checkout line. It's like it is a direct analogy. And that was very necessary to meet the expectations of online shoppers who were used to shopping offline. But the tech has changed so much. The way people interact on the web, mobile devices, it's shifted so much, but shopping is still a bit stuck where it was a long time ago. 
And part of the reason for that is because the way e-commerce platforms were built were in this relatively rigid, monolithic structure. We are Shopify, and we will offer you the storefront and the checkout and the back end. And it's all put together. And if you want to sell something online, we don't care where the traffic comes from. You got to send all of the traffic to the same product page. And then it all goes through the same shopping cart and it goes all through the same checkout. Like that's actually not necessary. That's just the way these incumbents platforms are built. And so we're coming along and we're saying that's not how it needs to be at all. You should be able to build however you want to build in these new headless ways with different landing pages, different campaigns, different paths into the buying process. So we come out and we say, here's this headless checkout and no one really knows what that means. And so we're in the category creation process or problem, depending on how you look at it. So anytime you have many, many people making one set of assumptions around how a checkout works with e-commerce, and then your company has to go and change that, that is both a very big challenge and a very big opportunity. Totally. Because they are essentially, you know, you have two different things that you're marketing, right? You have to market the problem and market the idea of a new way to solve that problem. And then as you're doing that, you need to market, of course, your solution and get people to believe that your solution can be used to solve that problem. Yes. And all at the same time, you have to get enough traction to prove to investors that you deserve the next round of funding. So you can't live too far off into the future, but you can't only satisfy what the market wants right now because then you won't get to your vision. And that like push and pull is a big part of the challenge. So if you look at our product right now, where a lot of our efforts are aimed is going long with the current reality. So right now, a big commerce merchant or Salesforce or commerce tools or Swell, they can just take their existing site, leave it exactly as is. But instead of using the default big commerce checkout, they can use the rally account. Right. So in that way, we're kind of going along with the current market expectations. You don't have to change anything. But at the same time, we've built our product in such a way that someone can grab Next.js on the front end, use Rally as the transaction layer, and push all the order information into Swell. So like satisfying both of those is, is a challenge. That makes sense. And where are you seeing the most adoption right now? Are there specific segments of the market where you're really seeing this gain traction? So I would say it's gaining traction in different ways in different segments of the market. So smaller e-commerce merchants see us as a new way to generate new revenue. So we have this very important feature that's like a a key differentiator for us called post-purchase offers. And what that does is it allows the merchant to make offers in between the checkout page and the thank you page. So think about Amazon's you may also like upsell feature, but that makes an offer pre-purchase. So the shopper has to make another buying decision before checking out. We take that upsell offer and put it behind the checkout page. So it's like making an upsell offer without any risk of losing the initial transaction. And very importantly, those upsell offers are based on what was bought on the checkout page. So it's very congruent, right? So the merchant can say, here's a coffee maker I'm selling you. And then on the post-purchase offer, here are the filters that work with that exact coffee machine. And then you get to the thank you page after that. So that feature is catching the attention of smaller merchants as a new form of revenue. Larger merchants are looking at our solution and saying, we want to outsource our checkout. We are sick of spending development time on it. We can't keep up. There's a million buy now, pay laters. There's crypto on the way. There are NFTs. There's all these different regulations in Europe. Just let us pay you and you handle the checkout. So it's like 
two different markets, same product, but coming at it from different angles. And could you define what you consider a small merchant and a big merchant? Sure. Two ways. One on a revenue scale, right? So like one to $20 million a year is a smaller merchant. And then large mm-hmm. merchants go, you know, 20 million to 100 up into the billions. Mm-hmm. The, the other way to look at it is resources. So smaller merchants look to the e-commerce platforms to do as much as possible. And they effectively hire individual apps to take care of individual functionality in their business, whether that be email marketing or pop-ups or some type of automation or anything else or inventory or something else. So smaller merchants want solutions that they can just pay for and then have that functionality added to their business. Larger merchants have more resources and they have development teams and they need to manage where they're spending their resources. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And in terms of traction, are there any numbers that you're comfortable with sharing? Uh, Only numbers I'm comfortable sharing is that we're processing millions. And right now, the biggest limitation for us is platform integrations. So every time we build a platform integration, we open up a new market to sell into. And so the challenge now is how to scale up platform integrations in a way that doesn't drive us completely out of our mind, which is not an easy thing to do. (laughs) Makes sense. Last couple of questions for you. What excites you most about the work you get to do every day? Oh, it's got to be a combination of things like business problems, working with great customers. The whole thing feels like a giant test of perseverance and patience, enjoying the people that we work with. So my co-founder, Rock, and our VP of product, Jessica, the three of us worked together at Cardhook and went through war together. And now we get to start a new company and like restart the war. So like that's that's just fun. I always think of all these this whole thing is like a big game of chess. And I, I enjoy the hell out of that version of things where it's like this strategic, you know, challenge. Yeah, I love it. For me, my favorite thing is when it's like thrilling, when it's like exciting and crazy and stressful. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I love that. And if we zoom out into the future, what's the five-year vision for the company? So we want the best brands in the world to use our product. We want millions and millions of shoppers in our rally pay network to be able to buy things very easily on the web. And we want both of those parties, merchants and shoppers, to have true ownership in what we do. And I don't think we have that much time to get into that. But very quickly, we eventually want to launch our own crypto token and allow merchants and shoppers to earn ownership in our network based on their participation in that network. So Merchants based on how much revenue they process through the checkout and shoppers based on how much they buy from rally merchants. Wow. We're going to have to bring you on just to talk about that whenever you're uh, you're ready to dive deeper into it. Cool. Sounds good. Amazing. Jordan, this was so much fun. I had a blast really talking to you here and getting to know you and learning more about what you're doing. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, find me at Jordan Gall on Twitter. Or check out Bootstrap Web if you want to follow along on like a week-to-week basis. And for the company and the product, go to rallyon.com. That's R-A-L-L-Y-O-N.com. And you can subscribe to the newsletter, follow us on Twitter, and just keep up with what we're doing. Amazing. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. And wish you best of luck in executing on this vision. Thanks so much. All right. Keep in touch. Keep in touch.